So welcome everybody. Today we are lucky to have Dr. George Hornby. Dr. Hornby is professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at IU School of Medicine and director of the Locomotor Recovery Lab at the Rehab Hospital of Indiana. Dr. Hornby received his master's degree in physical therapy from the University of Pittsburgh, his PhD in physiology and neuroscience from University of Arizona and completed postdoctoral work at Northwestern University. He was previously a research scientist at the Rehab Institute of Chicago. The goal of his locomotor recovery lab at RHI is to develop and test strategies that can optimize delivery of rehabilitation interventions to maximize locomotor function in patients post-stroke, incomplete spinal cord injury, or brain injury. He is also currently director of research for the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy and has authored numerous manuscripts on neurophysiology and physical rehab, including being the primary author on a recent CPG to improve locomotor function in chronic stroke, incomplete spinal cord injury, and brain injury, which we'll be talking to him about today. Say hello to the group. Hi, thanks for having me. It is a pleasure. Um, so we're gonna get right into this, and we're gonna start just by talking a little bit about clinical practice guideline. Uh, it's designed to improve locomotor function for um, a wide array of neurologic uh, impairments. So what specifically did you look at in terms of types of impairments and what types of interventions are you looking at for the guideline? So we're looking at um, people with an acute onset neurological disorder. So that would be um, stroke, spinal cord injury, and acquired brain injury. Some kind of initiating trauma or lesion by vascular event were the typical causes. So it wasn't that broad, we felt, um, because they weren't degenerative. And the idea of linking them together was because um, it's an acute onset, it's not degenerative, and, and so the processes of recovery and neuroplasticity in these different systems are probably retained for the most part. Uh, the idea was you have damage to the nervous system and you still have sparing, and the, the ability to learn within spared circuits is probably similar and consistent. It may not be, the, the magnitude may not be the same, but the mechanisms may be similar. And then we looked at uh, people in the chronic stages post-injury, so more than six months after this injury. So, and that was designed to minimize the effects of uh, spontaneous neural recovery on the changes observed. And, and those spontaneous, spontaneous changes, recovery changes, are are really helpful early in stroke. And so it's hard to differentiate if it's the intervention that's changing you versus the um, natural recovery. Then the interventions. The interventions were what therapists tend to do uh, as based in the research. What are the specific strategies that we found um, and we kind of knew from you know, our own clinical practice, watching others, uh, textbooks, and then research-based interventions. So we started off with a list of basic things like strengthening exercises, um, balance exercises, walking exercises. But then some of, those, some of those types of general interventions have specific focuses within them. Um, so are you doing it on a treadmill? Are you reaching a high intensity? Do you have virtual reality? Do you have robots? So we had an idea of, of what the general interventions would be, but then we really searched the literature and had to separate based on what we found. You said that most of the patients are in the chronic phase. 
Can you talk about what kind of functional level they were at? Were they using um, assistive devices? Did they need physical assistance? Were they doing bracing? Those types of questions. Yeah, so in, in the chronic stages after injury, um, depending on the population, let's take stroke. 90, 80 to 90% of the people with stroke walk after at six months or after the recovery process. So because our locomotor outcomes were walking and because we knew at least a few populations, mostly stroke, because the majority of data was going to be in there, um, we decided to use straight walking outcomes that are the standardized outcome measures. We had an idea of what the outcome CPG was going to recommend. So we went with 10 meter walk and six minute walk. Um, and then those people who were not ambulatory uh, or needed assistance were typically left out. So we didn't use something like a FIM score or a functional ambulation category. So these are people who ended up having 10 meter or six minute walk scores within the research record. And then that tended to exclude people who were non-ambulatory. Again, most people with stroke walk. Um, spinal cord obviously is very different and limits the, the, the sample that you have. And then brain injury is, is one all over the road as far as you know, the time course and the magnitude of recovery. Just not a lot of literature there. Um, so it ended up being people who essentially walked on their own. Not every article included people who walked completely on their own. Uh, but most people walked on their own and they had to have a 10 meter walk score or a six minute walk test in there. So they could use braces, they could use assistive devices. Um, we didn't restrict what type of brace or assistive device, but they typically didn't have physical assistance. Um, and, and you kind of broke it out into three categories. Is that how the clinical practice guideline breaks it out into stroke, uh, incomplete spinal cord, and brain injury? And are there different recommendations for each of those, or are they um, more conglomerate? Well, so it's a good question. You know, reading the actual CPG and, and what we ended up having to do is we, we had a general recommendation, and then we delineated the amount of evidence for each diagnosis. So if you go through, you'll see that stroke, for everyone, every category of intervention had patients with stroke in it, and they had to have at least four articles to have a category for that intervention. And stroke was the predominant one. There was a lesser amount of data for spinal cord injury, and so we specified you know, how much data there was. It was limited or no evidence, and, um, and TBI had, had even less data. Uh, we didn't specify recommendations per diagnosis, uh, in large part because if there's just no data for TBI, the idea was, well, what do you, what do you fall back on? you fall back on nothing? It's just kind of a free-for-all to do whatever you want? The idea was probably not. The mechanisms of plasticity are probably similar across different acute onset injuries. Um, so the recommendation for an intervention was the same, although they, we detailed the amount of evidence. That's interesting. So you're grouping them based on the acute onset of injury and neuroplasticity and task-specific exercise being the, the hypothetical mechanism of change rather than trying to delimit out. I think that's just a different way to look at it. And I think it's helpful from a clinical perspective, which you know, this is a clinical practice guideline. I think that, um, that is really helpful so that you include all of the groups 
yeah. show the different levels of evidence for each portion, but to have all of them in there so we have something to go on, I think, from a clinician yeah. perspective, is super helpful. So, Well, thanks. So one clarification, though. You, you, you mentioned something about task-specific exercise. Well, that was a, um, a point where we thought that specificity mattered, but we didn't know what, what the evidence actually was until we found all the evidence and delineated it. So the idea that task-specific practice will promote neuroplasticity, that's fine, but that isn't really clear unless all these papers are put together. And then we, we found, well, is specificity actually important? If that's a principle of plasticity and that should be consistent, is it actually important? And it turned out sort of, but you, but you had to have other principles of plasticity to make a more effective intervention. That's good. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, for the first recommendation clinical practice guideline came up with um, is to perform walking at moderate to high intensity. And what are specific recommendations for patient care uh, related to that? Is it a heart rate? Is it a blood pressure? Is it a, a Borg scale? Could you just talk us a little bit through what that, that looks like? Sure. So, so this is an area that I tend to research more. One, because I, I thought it worked like 10 years ago and um, you're taking my articles out of the CPG, you would find that it still works fairly well. In fact, the strength would be a little higher uh, without some of my articles in there, but intensity is, is really should be defined by heart rates and the, the way that people measure um, heart, the targeted heart rate is a little bit different and I won't go into too many details. It's out of the side of the CPG scope, but it's usually uh, 70 to 85 percent of um, maximum heart rate and so that that's in the range of moderate to high intensity the, you can do heart rate reserve and that becomes about 60 to 80 percent heart rate reserve and there are different ways to calculate that those two different measures um, blood pressure is essential to measure but you can't really measure intensity off of blood pressure because there's medication issues and there's a lot of other uh, individual specific issues that will change blood pressure responsiveness. And then oftentimes the heart rate isn't accurate because of individual specific differences and medications. Beta blockers could, someone could be really sensitive to beta blockers. So a lot of the articles used uh, the Borg rating of perceived exertion or RPEs. And in that case, they typically, if you do 70 to 85% targeted heart rate, you're looking at about a 14 to 17 uh, is what you're trying to target. And there are limits for going too high and cardiac abnormalities that all these different types of research articles took into account, uh, but the intensity group was moderate to high, varying levels and then varying amounts and durations. Uh, most of it, I'm sorry, all of it was walking uh, in those cases, but really trying to reach that high heart rate. So you mentioned, uh, you know, various amounts of time. Are we talking intensity, number of sessions? What do you mean by that particular? So, so this is where um, therapists, therapists and a lot of individuals, not just therapists, uh, tend to define their parameters of exercise training a little bit differently. And I think we, we all need to get on the same page. So Intensity really means the power output or, or the rate of work or workload. 
And so that's usually speed of work or the amount of work carried over a unit time. Um, we can't measure that well in just normal everyday activities. So the surrogate measure of that is gonna be uh, peak oxygen consumption. A secondary surrogate measure is heart rate. So intensity is heart rate. The other parameters are time. So how long exercise session is or how many sessions, um, frequency, how frequent they are through the weeks, and then the type of activity. They needed to delineate some aspect of those general exercise training parameters. So again, frequency, intensity, time, and type. That's the FIT principle, which we integrated within the CPG. If the articles had those types of parameters detailed, or at least one of them, then we took it. And every article had type. So they, they told us what they did. And then the details of some of these other articles, if they're doing intensity, high intensity exercise, well, they had heart rates in there. And then times, frequencies, durations, those, those, were, those were hard to dig up sometimes. Sometimes they were very easy and straightforward. Um, and the articles were rated by the strength of how well they actually detailed um, that information as well. We're talking uh, about a pretty vigorous activity for these individuals. So were there any adverse events that were found in some of the research? Um, how were, did they avoid adverse events? Um, and what were kind of some cutoffs to monitoring safety? Yeah, so that's a good question. And, and our CPG didn't, uh, that wasn't the major goal, but we did address this. What I would do is, is uh, if someone is really interested, um, Marco Pang, he's out in Hong Kong Polytechnic University. He wrote a review in 2013 about all the uh, different high-intensity interventions applied post-stroke and not just walking and not chronic only subacute. And he really found very little differences in rate of adverse events between those types of activities and normal care or conventional therapy. So there, there's a population that something might happen, but it didn't seem to matter if you worked them hard or not. It's just going to happen anyways. Um, a lot of these articles did EKGs beforehand. They uh, measured vitals all the way through. Typically heart rates measured blood pressure. A lot of them, I can't comment on that. I, I know that when I do this, we look at the American College of Sports, Sports Medicine and the American Stroke Association to look at what type of guidelines they utilize. It's really important that you be safe. And, and whether you're doing high intensity or not, you know, measuring heart rate, measuring blood pressure for sure. I mean, people don't even know what their blood pressures are when they're walking in the clinic. That's really important to do. Keeping them below a certain threshold of heart rate, 85% uh, of uh, maximum. It, some seem to be recommended by a lot of groups, uh, and they, wouldn't, they would tend to not go over that too much. What's interesting, though, is that a lot of people might be able to tolerate more, and um, some people might not be able to tolerate nearly that. So you kind of titrate it to the individual person. I know in these research articles, we say we did it this way. Sometimes it's hard to get someone to rate up. Sometimes it's hard to keep their heart rates down. And, and there's a mismatch sometimes between heart rate and RPE. So measure everything you can, be that's reasonable, and just make sure you're safe with these people. And that's regardless of the intervention. 
I think that's really important to, to hear a couple of things in there is that um, it can be hard to get them in this heart rate uh, range that they stay there for a lot of different reasons and that, you know, these, these are the guidelines. But even in these guidelines, there are very few adverse events because I think it's a, it's a frame of mind for a lot of therapists to really expect people to be able to do this. So I think that's really great to hear. Yeah. I think, I think that, that, uh, that first part is really important because um, we've tried to delineate this more in our articles. Like there are some people, let's take, so let's go outside the CPG. You have a modest patient with stroke or a max assist. This person can barely move. Like you are trying to do what you can and their heart rate is not going anywhere, but you're trying. And oftentimes, more often than not, you keep on working at it and the person improves both natural and hopefully what you're doing is helping. And they gradually get some ability to volitionally move some more. Now the muscles are active. Now the heart rate has to deliver, the heart has to deliver that blood and that heart rate will finally start to go up. Sometimes it takes a while. Um, some people are so deconditioned, you get them standing and then their heart rate's 160. Um, so it really varies a lot. And those types of details are unfortunately not, not listed in these research articles, which is why some case studies on these things might be actually helpful to, to help clinicians actually know. We say we're trying to do this. This is what this actually looks like. Yeah, that's really exciting. And some of the knowledge translation stuff that's coming out now of what this actually looks like in the future is going to be super helpful. Um, but it, it's nice to hear from even researchers on the, that that's a challenge sometimes. Um, so the next question related to the first one is, where does patient preference come into all this? Uh, you know, motivation is often hard um, for patients or for therapists and patients to get them to, to engage and work this hard. What do you think about that? Yeah, that, so that, that's a really good point. And, and something that we should have hit on on the CPG, and we didn't hit on it enough. You've got to remember, everyone has to remember, and we always forget this, they may not like exercise, but their number one goal is to walk and to walk better. So as far as patient preference, a lot of them want to walk better, right? So, yeah, they may not like pushing it, but you kind of, you have to lay out, look, this is, this is your goal, and this is the data to best achieve that goal. Now, we can do it at the way we think we should do it and getting your heart rate up. That's going to be hard for you, but it might be something that you have a pretty big return on your investment. If you don't want to do this and you go lower, we can't get as high heart rates and you're just not pushing as much, your return isn't going to be that good. So giving them that, that, that choice right off the bat, it's like, what do, you, what do you really want to do? They are the patient and they, they call the shots um, and you're just informing them of these are, these are, the, these are the benefits and the risks of doing this. And that's what it'll take. And a lot of times, even your non-exercisers, of which half of these individuals are uh, before their stroke or whatever injury, uh, they, a lot of them come along for the ride and, and uh, want to do this with you. Some of them are really difficult. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, I think the education piece is, is always cute. And it doesn't matter the intervention, but the education piece to get some buy-in um, is always super helpful. And, and knowing that there's some 
some good research behind it is, is helpful when talking with patients. But we're going to move on to the second recommendation. So the second one is recommending using virtual reality while walking for training. And so what types of systems uh, were successful in some of the studies and how might somebody access one? Yeah, so um, there wasn't a single study that used the same virtual reality system. So, so that's a limitation. And, uh, but we, I felt you could kind of turn that around. Well, if, it, if all these systems were different, it doesn't really matter what the system is, really. Uh, and then there's something about what, what is the actual virtual reality doing? It's, it's not the actual visual feedback. It's engaging the person. So engaging them with some kind of task is something that increases their volitional activity, increases cortical, you know, prefrontal cortex type activity, have them make decisions and choices, have them kind of learn from their mistakes uh, when getting that feedback. So on a treadmill, a VR system's kind of tough uh, because if you're not strapped into the treadmill, you will fall backwards on the treadmill and, and maybe you know, not walk and keep the pace of the treadmill. So that becomes tougher. There are some systems out there. In an overground system, uh, that may be okay, but you know, if, if you're in a visual screen, um, uh, if you're in some kind of glasses, you, you may not be able to see the world around you. So a treadmill with a large projector in front of you um, also has its limitations. So what we, what I try to kind of come back to is what is the key thing? It's probably getting them engaged. And there's this whole idea of reality rather than virtual. Why, if, if you can do reality, why make it virtual? Go engage them in tasks that are important to them. They're going to have to engage their prefrontal cortex and really challenge themselves to, to do something a little bit different. So we'll throw obstacles on the treadmill or over ground. We'll, we'll negotiate different types of paths around things on uneven surfaces, really to kind of simulate things they may have to encounter in the real world. I think that's more important than the actual virtual. The virtual is, um, one, costlier. Two, has its limitations depending on how you want to walk people. Yeah, that's an that's a interesting way to look at it. And, and you're again focusing on the patient and making sure that they're actively engaged in uh, environments so that they can drive the movements. It's what they really are there for therapy to do. So the next recommendation, I'm gonna kind of clump a couple of them together. Um, so there are recommendations for strength training, cycle training and circle and circuit training um, to improve walking distance. You know, there are some high, there's some high quality evidence, um, but weak strength for the recommendation. What's a time when you would might use that rather than a walking intervention or uh, a virtual reality? If, if it, the recommendation number one is top one, and you go down from there, or are they all recommendations? So, so the you're right on. You've got the two ones that we really say you should really do these two, and then the other ones we, we kind of have those as the green light, and then the other ones you just mentioned, those are kind of the yellow light, meaning that if you really can't do those those first two, then, or someone just doesn't have it that day, they're just having a hard time doing one of those first two, then give it a shot. And if you have to fall back on something, fall back on these other ones. So strengthening circuit and cycling. Um, 
You will notice, though, that all three of those are pretty high intensities. High intensity for strength training is a, a percentage of one rep max, typically. And then cycle, cycling and circuit training are all using heart rate as a surrogate measure of intensity. So they're still intensive, um, but the mixing it up a little bit might be helpful. So that because they're not specific, but they are intense, they seem to have um, a good recommendation, not a great recommendation. We'll move on to the next one. So you said the first two are green light. Definitely do those if, if they can at all costs. Uh, the next three um, are yellow light as a secondary option. The recommendation is against using balance training to improve posture without vibration. But does that say that clinicians can use static and dynamic balance strategies coupled with VR? Um, can you walk us through this recommendation and just what the, the fine details there? Um, of static postural control training versus dynamic with a virtual reality? Sure, so let me, let me go to the virtual reality first. The idea there was probably engaging people in something, some kind of task while they're doing balance activities, just so they are um, increasing volitional activation wasn't intense the way that we would measure intensity like a heart rate. There were no heart rates measured there. But the, the data just kind of came out that that was a, uh, a possible recommendation. Um, again, it's a, it's a yellow light item on your uh, list of, of uh, interventions to choose. It had some evidence, not, not a lot of evidence, about half the articles showed some benefit and half the article really didn't as compared to uh, regular therapy or you know, no therapy. Um, so I think the engagement was important there. The, the balance training without engaging people, and hopefully they, they are engaged somewhat, um, this kind of speaks to the idea that you know, specificity and intensity matter. Like you're not improving any walking, really, when you're doing these types of tasks uh, because you're, you're not challenging the neural circuits underlying walking. You're not reaching a high cardiovascular intensity and the muscle neuromuscular demand aren't very high. And so this is the kind of the epitome of, of, um, of non-specific, non-intense practice that unfortunately you know, we, me, had been doing for years as a therapist. And, and the data just isn't coming out to be positive for that thing. So you, you, if you're practicing balance to improve balance, that's great. Separately outside the CPG, there's a lot of data that says that if you practice a, a walking task, you might be able to prove balance at the same time. It might come along for the ride. That's outside of the CPG, but the idea that balance carries over to walking it just doesn't seem to, to um, hold up. That's uh, really interesting, and I find it a little bit uh, surprising because postural control is so often altered in this population and, and, and had for a long time has been a huge um, building block or thought of the building block of going towards walking, and, but it, it didn't seem to turn out that way. Any thoughts on why that might be, or is it all related to the intensity that you're talking about? Well, it's, it's both, I think, specificity and intensity. So if you look at balance training or pre-gate-like activities, right? You're not doing the task of walking. You're not intense. I don't know how much practice you're actually doing, so you're probably not getting a lot of anything. 
you, it's not clear how much you're engaging them. Clearly, VR balance uh, tend to do improve a little more, and you're supposed to be engaging them more. So all these kind of principles of neuroplasticity aren't really aligning with uh, a strategy like balance training on its own. And it is maybe surprising, and we continue to teach this in our educational programs, and it's in all the physical therapy textbooks that you read, or most of them for sure. I like to point to an article written 31 years ago by Carolee Winsky in Archives of Physical Medicine Rehab, and she did a study looking at patients with stroke doing um, biofeedback platform pre-gate weight shifting type activities um, and seeing if that improves weight shifting and walking function as compared to a group that got just regular PT without the actual biofeedback weight shifting. And in the group that got the biofeedback plus regular PT, they improved their ability to weight shift. Uh, and the group that didn't get the feedback, they did not really improve their ability to weight shift, but both groups improved the same at walking. So it just, it doesn't really help. And that was 31 years ago. And now with, a lot more data behind us, the same story is actually being told. And so it's going to be really hard for us to change what we've been doing and teaching for decades. Uh, but that is where the data points to. That's really interesting. I wasn't aware of that study. Um, thank you for pointing that one out. Um, okay, so the next one is the, is the one that I think I skimmed through when I, on my first read and really stuck out to me. Because um, it recommends uh, that therapists do not use body weight supported treadmill training. Can you talk us through the evidence for this? Sure. Um, so, again, this is comparing um, body weight supported treadmill training, um, which means having body weight support, not just a harness as a safety catch. And something critical about body weight supported treadmill training is that therapists tend to assist normal walking patterns. The idea that the sensory information given to the individual of a normal walking pattern will entrain the nervous system to improve their walking function better than some other group. And, and I can, you can take that type of strategy of bodyweight support with assisting kinematics and lump that actually in with the robotic training, which also assists kinematics and often has bodyweight support. The idea there is a couple things. If something's holding you up, you're doing less work to keep yourself up, right? So that will kind of reduce the neuromuscular activity necessary to hold yourself up. And then that in turn reduces the cardiovascular activity. You're not using your muscles as much. Your heart doesn't have to work as hard. And then if you're someone's assisting your walking pattern or robot is, then you are actually um, not doing as much work to walk on your own, right? So less neuromuscular activity, less cardiovascular demand. So the task is specific somewhat, but it's not intense. And so that's where that whole specificity alone thing matters because it, you may have to combine specificity and amount and intensity all together to get the best benefit, which is where that first recommendation actually comes in. Often bodyweight supported treadmill training and uh, intensity get lumped kind of together, but yeah. you're saying that really they should be separated and that we need to focus on the intensity. I think how, how do we go about separating the shift there and what, how should we think about this? Yeah. So that, that's the tricky one. You can do high intensity training with body weight support, but that's not what the articles do. 
So you don't have to separate it, but the articles somewhat separated themselves. Those bodyweight support training articles either don't measure heart rate, or when they do, they're fairly low, indicating the cardiovascular demands. Um, so what we do, and what a lot of labs do, is we have these patients in a harness, for sure. And if they're collapsing in the CPG, they're, they're not really collapsing because most of them walk on their own. If they're collapsing, we don't, we'll put some bodyweight support on. If they're not collapsing, which is most of these people in these articles that were in this, this CPG, we will not, most groups didn't um, unload them at all. They just kept the harness on. And then not helping their kinematics, um, that re increases their volitional activity um, and speeding it up does as well. Uh, and that actually seems to be better than just helping them along. So if someone is really, really impaired, now we're going outside the CPG, so subacute stroke, max assist, the only way they're going to walk or get some walking practice is probably if you help them, probably if you take some weight off but you can still measure intensity at the same time and try to get, get them up going faster and have them do more on their own. But as they progress, take the weight off and let them do more that they can do and then don't help as much. So, you know, short periods of them struggling might actually be more beneficial than just long durations of moving it through the, the kinematic pattern. Hmm. And so with, with that, there becomes this, this idea, and this becomes important, it's not in the CPG, the idea that practicing normal may not actually get them to look more normal. It doesn't seem to get them any faster, uh, maybe a little faster, but not any more so than conventional therapy. But those studies that do bodyweight support treadmill training with assisting kinematics, you know, there's not a lot of data that say that kinematics actually improve. It's really tough to change someone to actually bend their knee and not circumduct. That is just extremely difficult. And so all the guided practice of trying to bend their knee for them doesn't seem to really help. So if that doesn't help, why practice it? I, I, I hear what you're saying, and, and it is a little bit outside the CPG, but I think it's a really important point. So thank you for, for going there and, and just talking a little bit about that. Yeah. The next one is, is sure. more of a real world question. You know, does cost and assistance require body weight supported versus intensity? Does that factor in at all? Uh, obviously it sounds like there are gonna be changes to the manpower required for each intervention. Could you just talk a little bit through that? Well, yeah, so, you know, treadmills are pricey. I'm not gonna minimize that. But, you know, if you, if you have an impaired patient and a harness system, it's a lot easier to get a lot more practice with those systems. So that's a cost that I think that we have to consider for our rehab clinics across the U.S., and even some of your smaller outpatient clinics. I'm not going to recommend any, any type of devices, but there are not massive, there are some not massively expensive ones out there. I wouldn't say cheap, but those do at least some of the job. Uh, as far as manpower, frees you up a little bit because you don't need three people to move the legs and keep the pelvis weight shifted correctly um, because that doesn't seem to improve too much. Um, you could really benefit from getting a blood pressure cuff. So the idea here is that if, if you, you, you probably need to get a treadmill, the treadmill is really helpful for just getting a lot of practice in. 
You probably don't need three people to move the legs and to weight shift. Um, so that frees up the costs of, of doing an intervention. You probably don't need a robotic device because those are really priced. That frees up the cost. Um, you really would benefit from having a blood pressure cuff and having heart rate monitors on. So pulse oximeters that attach to the forehead or can be strapped on and measure heart rate at the forehead. That becomes really helpful because it's tough to grab it on a finger pulse socks when their one arm is spastic and the other one's holding onto a treadmill rail. Polar heart rate monitors that go around the chest and now there's uh, armbands. Those are not too expensive. They're about $100 and there's a, there's a uh, app for a uh, phone that you can easily um, get that information, actually store it and download it for later analysis to see how hard you're actually working them and how long you're working them in the range. Those are the things that, that actually are uh, not that expensive. The cost didn't go into the recommendations. The recommendations were based only on data. And then how someone actually implements that, we gave some suggestions for that. And the whole knowledge translation task force for the locomotor CPG that is trying to assist clinicians and residency programs right now of how to better implement this across the U.S. and those, those groups that are interested. Yeah, that's a, a nice plug for us. So the next uh, interview that we're going to do, we're going to talk to somebody from the Knowledge Translation and try and get into the nitty-gritty of, of how to find max heart rate, of observe heart rate for people, and what types of setting and speed and all that stuff. So we're, we're hopefully to hopefully going that direction with the podcast as well. Uh, I think you've already covered this, but the next, the final recommendation was to not use robot-assisted technology for gait training. And, and it sounds like the, the thought process is there is you really want to have people as actively engaged as, as possible, and it, and it just didn't really show a benefit in, in the research. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that? No, just... The the, we did studies uh, in 2006 outside of the, the CPG, and then a, a group in Belgium recently did another two studies. Ours were in spinal cord, and, and they did theirs in stroke. Um, but here's the plug. Here's the basic answer. You put someone in a robotic device, and you measure EMG, and you measure heart rate, and you measure metabolic responses, and you'll find that whatever body weight support and whatever amount of assistance, some of these devices can reduce the level of assistance, people relax. If something else does the work for you, the person in the device slacks. It's a slacking factor or this principle of laziness. So those devices, while they're helpful, maybe really impaired individuals, people will, will reduce their engagement and reduce their neuromuscular activity. And that's not nearly as helpful as uh, getting them more engaged. You're getting steps in, but those steps are um, not at the metabolic cost or cardiovascular demands that really indicate that you are driving your nervous system. In having the, the CPG now, how do you see this, uh, this being applied into practice? Um, are there recommendations on you know, keeping it around or um, trying to implement certain parts of it? Can you just talk a little bit through that? Well, sure. The, the KT, the Knowledge Transition Task Force, will certainly talk more about that, which will be good. Um, but it, it's really trying to understand, in the PPG, we, we tried to delineate the principles that seemed to be important, and that was specificity, amount, intensity, all three combined for the first recommendation. And then the second recommendation, maybe not so much intensity, 
they didn't really measure heart rate, but then saliency. So the idea is that um, in, the, in the CPG, we tried to delineate the contributions of those specific principles to the recommendations that we found. So for intensity, specificity amount and um, intensity were all important. And then the second recommendation, VR, well, intensity wasn't really measured, but salient tasks, engaging the individual, that seemed to be important. So those four principles are uh, in the Klein and Jones article that we referenced and uh, seem to be really important. Um, those type of take-home messages are what we wanted therapists to, to come away with, like make it hard, make it specific, do a lot of it, and get them engaged. Um, that is specific for the chronic CPG, um, and there's another subacute CPG that's coming out. Um, even without that data, currently, that, that group is just being started, the general principles are probably the same in subacute neurological injury. They might be similar in degenerative injuries. Um, Parkinson's disease is, is having their own CPG coming up here in a second, but we'll have to see. And, and the reason why we do all this data is we can formulate these guide these um, meta-analyses and systematic reviews and give recommendations so we can actually um, do something different in practice based on evidence. Uh, something that we've all strived to do over the last 20 years, and, and now we're at a point where we may now have enough evidence to do it. I think that's a, a great way to, to summarize uh, a large part of the conversation. Um, and, and, and thank you again for all your work on the CPG um, and the rest of the team. Um, it's really nice to see the uh, American Neurological Physical Therapy Association um, and other groups getting together to get some information out there for clinicians to use every day and with our patients. So thank you very much for that. No problem. Thanks for having me again. I think um, it's, if anyone has any um, questions, you know, feel free to contact any of the authors on the CPG and really recommending reading the entire article. Sometimes a lot of uh, therapists will read the abstract and dismiss it completely. And I think it's important to try to, to really delve into the entire article, not just for the CPG, but, but any type of article that therapists tend to pick. Thank you for your time. No problem. As always, I want to thank you for joining us, and hopefully you can join us next time when we talk to somebody from the Knowledge Translation Task Force on how to implement these recommendations and get into the, some of the nitty-gritty of clinical details required. Thanks, and see you next time.